Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Decorating Pages is a podcast dedicated to taking you behind the scenes of the designs of your favorite TV shows and films. Each episode, I'll be sharing design stories from some of Hollywood's most famous sets, interviews from set decorators, production designers, directors, and actors about creating the look of TV and film, about their design inspirations, and stories that take sets from page to screen. Hello, and welcome to Decorating Pages. I'm your host, Kim Wanup. Well, it's uh, it's July, and I'm still not back to work. I'm wondering if any of you are who are in the industry. I feel like uh, a lot of us started to get our engines running a little bit, and now with this past day of setbacks, um, I don't know. I don't. I really haven't heard anything. If uh, film production is essential office work. So I don't know if uh, I'm going back to work anytime soon. I think we're all a little confused. Uh, maybe it's per production basis. I don't know. Uh, I seem to be reading that um, it's okay if you're filming outside, but <laughs> that just seems like a logistical nightmare. Also, bringing a whole film crew outside these days. So I don't know. Um,. I think I feel the way a lot of people feel is that I can't wait to get back to work, but it's going to be really hard and I almost just want to sit it out till it's all done, but I love my job and there's just that fire inside that makes you want to create and get back to it. So hopefully we will. Hopefully, um... We can all wear a mask and get back to work and wash our hands and it'll be fine. So I hope so. Uh, and this past couple of weeks, I've just been diving into documentaries and films about our industry. Um, so what's one up watching? Uh, I did a lot of <laughs> documentaries in the last week and my husband and I also restarted watching The Crown on Netflix. I love The Crown. I just think it's magnificent. I just think every aspect of it is just a 10. I think it's a 10. Can't really find a flaw. I mean, maybe I can. But I, uh, that it's the acting. But I, I think sets and all that jazz is just, oh, I love it. I don't know. I love the whole story of it. Huh? Oh, I just love it. So we're like halfway through season one. 
I love it. What can I say? So I watched this documentary called The Fabulous Ellen Carr, which is, uh, I think I watched it on Amazon. Um, I didn't know who Ellen Carr was, but I sure shit have seen his movies and was pretty much obsessed with Grease 2 when I was young. So uh, he produced Grease, Grease 2, uh, La Cage Fall, and produced the 1998 Oscars, and just a super duper, he was like a uh, an agent, and then a producer, and just positive guy, and just made you believe things, and made you think everything was going to be fabulous, and like, loved old Hollywood, and old glamour, and, and the, 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 the storyline of just how he produced the 1989 Oscars alone is fascinating. <laughs> it's like, I guess, uh, I guess one of the worst produced shows the Oscars ever had. Um, I, when they showed footage of it, I actually remembered watching it, um, because I've never, I never missed an Oscars when I was younger. So really just, um, it's a good story and it, you know, it talks about Hollywood and producing and getting, getting movies made in a weird way. Um, I watched Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, which is a documentary that came out last year, 2019, about sound in films. And it just goes into great detail of the emotion that sound brings to films and television. And I think for me, one of the most interesting parts was this, they had this diagram called the circle of talent, which is broken up. It looks like a rainbow and it's broken up into three sections, which is, um, voice sound effects and music. And so in the voice section, you have production recording, dialogue, editing, and ADR. And then in the sound effects department, you have special effects, foley, and ambience, and then, and then there was just music. So it's crazy to realize how many levels of sound and all these layers that are in just a couple seconds of film, um, really wonderfully made a uh, documentary. So if you're in, if you're into sound or if you're not into sound, it makes you get into sound. Um, yeah, Making Waves. I believe that that's on Amazon and Netflix. I watched By Sidley Lamont, um, the great director. Um, obviously, <laughs> he did The Wiz, <laughs> uh, The Verdict, 12 Angular Men, uh, Serpico, Network, Dog Day Afternoon. He did Death Trap, which is one of my guilty pleasures. If you haven't seen Death Trap with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve and Diane Cannon... It's really bad, but it's really good. <laughs> um, it's just wonderful to hear him speak about his films and his color palettes and how he used them or like he, he blatantly didn't use color palettes and then talk about the lighting, just really interesting filmmaking, um, documentary. And that I watched on Amazon, I believe. Also on Amazon, I watched There Are No Fakes which is about fake art being passed around for years by the artist Norval Marceau. Uh, he's an indigenous artist, really bold, beautiful color. And it's, uh, it's like flowers and animals and uh, his heritage and he has messages in his art, just beautiful pieces. And I guess they were 
easily uh, duplicated. I don't know. The documentary follows people who have purchased the art and art dealers who sold it. Uh, and then it takes a kind of a weird turn about one of the dudes abusing kids and teens, which I didn't see coming at all, but um, it really should have been its own documentary. But that was good. And that was on Amazon um, also. And then I just last night watched Mucho Mucho <laughs> Mucho 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 Amor, which on Netflix uh, is so cute. And I'm sorry, I missed the boat on knowing who Walter Mercado was. So I I know that I'd seen him in my life, probably on Howard Stern or something, but I had no clue that he was this Puerto Rican icon. And it was simply fascinating. And the best part about this documentary is seeing this dude's house and how he lives because he's a hoarder of vitamins. And I'm totally stealing that for a character at some point because it was pretty fascinating to see how he lived. I mean, it's how we all live. You got, you know, some people, you know, we got a lot of shit. Some people have a lot of shit. So, but yeah. So that was really good. That just came out, I believe. I also watched The Lion King, the um, Al Hirschfeld story, the character art- uh, artist. <sighs> I wish. I wish I could draw like that. What a skill to just draw like he did. And it was for The New Yorker and The New York Times. And ugh, fantastic story. Really lovely. That was on Amazon also. So yeah, that was my week in documentaries and The Crown. Not bad. On this episode, I speak with Jonathan Fisher, who is an editor in unscripted reality television. He's been working on shows like Expedition Unknown, Little Women Dallas, BattleBots, American Guns, Ultimate Fighter, The Biggest Loser, and a ton more. So he explains to me how the editing process begins, works, and ends in a project. He explains how tsunami in Japan in 2011 changed the editing industry forever. Who knew? We discussed the ethical responsibility of an editor, uh, especially in reality television. How under current conditions, working remotely is doable, but not ideal. Um, and he had a big career change lately into virtual reality and how that relates to editing. He is a dear friend of mine. And I'm a little nervous because I, editing and editor is weird. Um, I don't really edit much out of these interviews. You could probably tell. <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, maybe the occasional twin screaming or the gardener or my neighbor's uh, hot rod revving up in the, uh, in the background. But I try to get that out. I know it's annoying. I'm sorry. Um, but it's always been my intention just to have informative conversation and just to let you listen in. So I hope you enjoy. friends, I would have to say. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I never, you don't really know people's backgrounds. Like, I don't, I don't know why you came out here. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> That's true, actually. I, I really yeah. don't know that, but I've been friends with you for so long. And, and, exactly. and this backstory is something I don't know of a lot of people. So I, that's one of the most interesting things of this. Like even with Ethan 
It was like I kind of knew, but not really. Like, I know he went to school, and then he came out here, but that dude just fell into it, kind of. Like, and luckily, and got, like, big projects and everything. But so how, so how did, did you want to be an editor? Let me ask that. I suppose, okay, um, how, do, how can I even describe this? <laughs> uh, I think that many people who work uh, within a creative in- industry, they, they have, uh, you know, somebody that I think that uh, Patton Oswalt once, once – you know, was calling kind of an ironic moment of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically of just, uh, you know, being exposed early on to some sort of like the, this amazing creative prowess and then just, yeah, you, know, uh, you know, kind of squandering it or just kind of like shrugging it off. So right. how did I get into editing? How did I actually start this? Uh, it, that would be high school, I would say. Oh, wow. um, that would be the, the most direct way that I would, I would kind of, I would place the beginning of my career path and uh that started actually with um a wonderful art teacher who's named uh vicky casper her name is vicky eichler now she got married and uh and has a wonderful son and we've we've stayed very very close throughout the years and uh as an art teacher of course uh she was always trying to get her students to push their boundaries, whether it was a medium of painting or if it was a medium of uh, any kind of mixed media or if it was a medium of this new thing that we, we didn't really understand yet, which was uh, us kind of coming to an understanding of, a, of this, uh, this new crossroads of, of television and digital media and for the first time having, uh, albeit in a very crude way, having this accessible to the regular civilians like uh where we would not and by that i mean mean, of course you know to to regular people normally uh working with until quite recently working with uh with any kind of video equipment was extremely expensive of course yeah you know thanks in large part to globalization and of course to you know trade with china and uh, and of course uh you know things like jvc and sony taking these leaps and downs and creating and panasonic creating these things called you know the camcorder and uh creating uh, (laughs) these cultures where uh, instead of using just regular photography or using you know that very expensive 16 mil or 8 mil to capture our moments then for the first time and the average middle-class family in the eighties could afford a camcorder. And oh, that's yeah, what changed them. everything. They were so heavy. We had them. They were so heavy. They were heavy. Yeah. And they were, and some of them had like cool bells and whistles and some of them were more compact than others, but you know, you really have to hand it to uh, Sony and JVC for creating these things because it really was a thankless job of having to miniaturize this more and more every year. And, uh, and have, I mean, formats just come and go. Let me, uh, but, let me ask you something. So did, that's, did, oh, you have a, did you have a PXL 2000? <laughs> no, what did we have? Uh, I'll, I'll, have to look, I'll have to look it up and oh, put no. it, uh, give it to you in the show notes because it was a Sony and uh, the, the actual model number escapes me. But it, uh, as my father uh, always said, that, you know, that he always wanted to get the ones with the bells and, bells yeah. and whistles. So it had a lot of really neat features. Well, like, the, it, like it could automatically fade. I think we had, but, uh, we went through like, three or four like in my lifetime of the really heavy one and then it got slimmer and then you went to that little compact one but the pxl 2000 was like a toy kind of it was it was marketed for like young filmmakers like you know using your action figures to make little movies so i don't actually know who made that but i had one 
but the tapes that you use, they were like almost cassette tapes and the tapes that you used to record things were so expensive. Now that your parents had already dished out all this money for this little camcorder. So I only ever had one tape. (laughs) So So in, this is the nineties. I'm 40, just turned 42 years old. So this is the nineties and uh, we were in high school and um, Vicki Eichler decided to, uh, create sort of a news channel for the school and uh, you know we, we were thinking every so often that we would run around this is a catholic school and we would run around in, in uniform yeah. and uh, we would just have different reporters making different stories and usually they were actually pretty much puff pieces and you know once in a while there was a student passed away unfortunately we made a memorial for her but uh in large part it was just it was very light we never we, we didn't exactly have like some sort of investigative journal journalism or anything like that in the school we wouldn't we wouldn't go like we, we weren't Where are like, these school funds? like that, tr- trying to crack this tr- crack the story but why do um, the boys know, get new helmets to... and the girls don't like <laughs> why exactly we well, we had to figure out how to edit these stories together, and uh, this was using um, relatively primitive technology because we didn't really have, at least at that school, we didn't have any way to actually edit um, our uh, our movies together. So we were doing things, something that we call in camera editing, which, uh, as the name would suggest, it means it's like it's like I am doing a shot here until this. Someone says these words, cut. I am going to cut right. to the next shot. And, yeah, you basically are assembling this thing as you go. It's very tedious and it's never really you know going to uh, be as smooth as, as being able to actually edit something that's what we call frame accurate editing. But uh, the the next crude method, let's say the next iteration of this, uh, is something that we would call tape-to-tape editing, which um, hmm. sometimes you would use like a kind of a control box that would control one deck and it would play back on one and control the other. And again, you know, very rudimentary effects, some little things you could do. The box worked only half the time. And, uh, it, you know, we would assemble our, uh, our uh, news stories that way. And this was painstaking. It was not something that was very fun at all. And uh, I do remember um, that Mrs. Eichler kept us uh, at one point, uh, probably a little later than she should have for us to uh, just uh, kind of get this thing done in, in time for, for broadcast. And, you know, little did I know that that would actually become kind of a, uh, the norm sometimes <laughs> in my career. Was, again, it was a little bit of an ironic moment. Uh, so, and I was also making plenty of movies with my friends with the aforementioned camcorders. Uh, and there were some friends in the neighborhood we, and we made countless little films uh, that, that were just a lot of fun. And we learned, we kind of learned filmmaking in this very sort of, um, it's like almost this Montessori sort of education of filmmaking, mm-hmm. where it's just, we were learning with our little peers of teenagers and we were learning by doing and uh, making all these mistakes as we go. But still, I didn't have any, any kind of a formal education, but we were actually getting quite good at making dumb little movies. At least I thought we were pretty good at it. Uh, but... That's then, probably the best um, way to do it because you're so young. Who cares if you make a mistake? Like, there's no. Yeah. That's the probably that's the, the best thing it. about it. Yeah. That's the time to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then so then uh, you know in the '90s, then I, I, uh, I attended college. I went to I attended college. I went to the Rochester Institute of Technology, um, and uh, which I, I was strategic about because my parents are from there, so I knew that I had countless aunts, uncles, and cousins that I could uh, I could go and, and do, do laundry and get free meals of beer, uh, and then Very just go back important. to my dorm. Yeah, it was nice, but I got to learn um, about professional broadcast quality editing, and of course cameras as well, and everything else you learn in film school. 
um, during those four years. So it was in 1998 was the beginning of my sophomore year. You know, we were learning on these big clunky systems, but uh, little did I know that I was actually learning until I really kind of uh, realized it one day. I mean, you know, I was an adult, but I, it, it was just kind of naive. I didn't understand that, uh, you know, my tuition was actually paying me to uh, to get at least kind of an elementary understanding of of how to work with a software and hardware package mm-hmm. that uh, was at the time worth probably $70,000 per system. Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Avid Technology out in Massachusetts at the time, they could charge whatever the hell they wanted, actually. Right. Uh, so that, that was kind of uh, one of my paths to editing. And I'll, I will say that, that I know I say, say it a lot now, but that really was an ironic moment because I hated editing on Avid Media Composer so much, <laughs> uh, but not for the reasons that you would think. It was actually not to be critical of the school, but it's just because of the logistics of all of this and the limits, the limitations of the technology at the time. Um, we, we didn't have big centralized servers. Storage was extremely, um, you know, it was not existent. You know, we didn't have centralized storage or a big server or something that that, you would, that anyone would take for granted. And gods are so much stuff in the cloud and things like that. Now we would have little zip drives. And a lot of times we would have to still digitize at least part of our movie uh, every time we did it. And we only had like, I think, I believe it was only a six hour block that you could take out uh, uh, for your, you know, for you to edit. So if you can picture how frustrating that is, yes, well, yeah. you are actually... You are digitizing footage every time, you know, much of the time. We didn't have huge hard drives that there was no big hard. There was we had zip drives that you could keep your project on. And that was about it. You know, so it was a very frustrating thing to have to digitize footage. Sometimes we would keep it in a secret folder and like <laughs> it just I kind of hide it somewhere. Uh, but you know, generally, we were supposed to blow our footage away and or we were supposed to just have an understanding that it was volatile. Sure, it might be on there today, but uh, you know, uh, but you know, uh, the facilities um, managers could at any time digitize whatever. I'm sorry, delete whatever they wanted. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, so that was you know, so it was it was frustrating. A lot of us started to, uh, to download, um, uh, uh, you know, versions of Adobe Premiere, which is of course uh, you know most people uh, familiar with the Adobe Suite know that that's still a lot around and kicking, and uh, you know a lot. Of would um, kind of we were college students I, and I really deeply regret this but we would find illegal means to uh, download this, um, this software and um, but, oh, you know, we well rocking. now yeah. it's now it's recorded that you did illegal shit I, know, so. I, I did illegal shit look at me yeah <laughs> in college what 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 are mp3s what's napsters uh, I yeah I don't yeah. I can't even talk about how much illegal music I downloaded but I know it, it was, yeah. I remember my, the beginning of my freshman year people like we're downloading these mp3s I was like mp what's and then like an hour later I had more music than I'd ever had right. in my entire life <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I, I, I was say, 18 years old I probably in college I wasn't that savvy and in college I was still like literally recording Howard Stern on a tape every day and then listening to it at night when I would draft so I was pretty backwards <laughs> yeah. at that point and had CDs but mp3s I didn't start downloading till way into like probably 2002 <laughs> I was late to that party I was still buying CDs that's all right that's not too late I think it still counts it's in the it's yeah. in the, 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 could, the early tender years of, of music piracy. I could still get a fine um, I probably could still get a fine <laughs> but uh so then but yeah so 
Yeah, and then college, so college came and went, and I graduated in 2001, and just like all of my friends, we, uh, we all one by one uh, moved out. It was kind of, I equate it to, uh, I equate it to, uh, you know, the, the kind of the great expansion of the West, kind of like in Far and Away, where like, they're all, <laughs> those people they're all just kind of staking their, their land. Is they're that staking our land in yeah. Los Angeles, and we're all like 20 years old, we don't know what we're doing at all, but like, uh, you know, and a lot of us are starting to kind of get jobs and figure this out. So within a couple of months, well, uh, okay, so. So I did not want to be an editor at all when I moved out here. Wow. You know, wow. Not not one bit. You know, I again, I was like, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. Um, but then, so I was like, uh, you know, I kind of want to direct, but, you know, so does anyone. So, you know, get in line, kid. So I, I did not know uh, what I wanted to do. And I'll admit that now. It was, uh, it was just a little bit strange, but I, I, I think that it, I, it's doubtful that, uh, that anyone goes out no. um, with certainty knowing what, your, what one's career is. You, it sounds like it's a little bit of an exception for you, but you never know. You, you maybe you would have hated uh, decorating. You would have hated. Oh yeah, no. I I think one of the best things about working your way up in this industry is actually seeing what other positions do. Like I wanted to be a production designer, and I sort of set that path, and then got to a point where oh, this I could, I'm on the path, and now I don't want to do it anymore, and had to kind of start over. So. And that was only because working in an art department, I got to see what positions were really doing and not just the titles. Like, you know, in art and even in editing, you have so you have titles of people you don't really know. You've sound mixing, you've editing mixing. Like it's you've so yeah. many things going on that you really so got to work friends. in it to see. Yeah. So many of my friends were bouncing around different different parts of the industry in a way that if you had told 42 year old me that uh, all these people would have had all these different careers I would have thought that was insane but like now right. looking back on it right. it was it was I, even I was a grip and electric and I was you know probably you know like I was scrawny it was probably about um you know, 20 pounds thinner and not like in a good way. Like I had no right. muscle. In that. Right. So I had no, I had no business heading up at like a 12 K. Like, uh, like there were a couple of times where like, I, uh, you know, I, and I worked on a tiny movie, uh, with Peter Stormare was like the executive producer of, uh, mm-hmm. when I first moved out here with a couple of friends. And after a week I got fired and it was just because I was too skinny. Like they're like, we, we're sorry. <laughs> you're going to, it's, it's for your own good son. Yeah. You're going to hurt yourself. Oh my like, God. Yeah. You're, it's, uh, so, uh, and it was, it was cool. Like, and Jeremy sister was just randomly in it. He's a sweetheart. Uh, but, uh, so it was a little, well, I always think Jeremy sister's like kiss of death. Like whatever he's in is like, you got about five episodes before they pull the plug. Like. I know. And, and, well, and this was an, an indie film, so it's just, oh, just finished well then. Yeah, in probably 20 days, and that was it. Right. So I worked on that for a couple of weeks. And I was like, I was a little down, you know, because I kind of thought I wanted to get into sound editing. And uh, I will say that in a strange way, I did, um, uh, because my, my career um, is um, comprehensive, I think would be the. the yeah. How, do, how, do, how you would put it. My career is a very comprehensive one now, currently. But, uh, yeah, some of my friends, I remember, uh, like, my friend Matt Taylor, who still is, uh, you know, bless him, he's, he's probably one of the most gifted re-recording mixers um, that I've ever, I've ever met. And he, uh, you know, uh, he got uh, his Emmy last year, uh, which is awesome. Oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Uh, so, you know, all these people working on these different shows and, uh, no, I'm sorry. He was an Oscar. My God. No, he got an Oscar. Uh, yeah. so yeah. Uh, 
I gotta look that up. I well, whatever. I mean, it, you know, it's Oscar yeah. Emmy. It's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the same, same thing. thing. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I started to see all my friends uh, trying out a zillion different things. Uh, which, again, if you looked at it now in my forties, it would have it would have seemed almost like diminishing returns. I would see my friends who were kind of getting into the sound guys and be like, "I think I'm gonna go join Local 600, yeah. which of course is cinemat- cinematographers union. I want to become a cameraman, but do sound, but do this." And so it, it was just kind of a shot kind of approach to our careers, and uh, we would all just kind of sit around, uh, you know, late at night at Barney's Beanery and, and just kind of you know, <laughs> play uh, play what was me and trying to you know figure out navigating the this terra incognita of our careers. I miss uh, and after a couple of months of me just bouncing around being Griffin Electric. I worked on a couple of USC films actually as well, uh, like some, uh, some starky ones, so big budget films and you know, people uh, people who were like in grad school and, uh, and of course uh, they're, you know, uh, some of them have had amazing careers actually since then like Jafar Mahmood actually, I worked on his thing and he actually is a huge TV director now. Kevin Burke uh, was a sound guy and was really a ama- very gifted uh, re-recording mixer and, and, uh, and music uh, supervisor and all this other stuff and he ended up, uh, now he's actually now he runs like a, like he's a showrunner but something like five or six different animated series right now and he still does it with his friend chris doc wyatt and, and you know it's just like all these friends who all hung out and made movies in college and now they're just doing this for, for a profession which you know that's amazing oh it's, yeah it, it, it's totally all, amazing. Of us, all, all we want to do is just make movies with our friends and so you know the, these these young men and women have uh, you know myself included have been you know have been blessed with the tools to persevere and we've have we have careers because of it so uh that's amazing but then um i finally found kind of a i walked into a job almost literally uh in post-production just because of a confluence of circumstances where my mother's uh college roommate her brother uh, was out here he was a, a you know, a TV and movie trailer editor uh, who was making the transition, again, career transitions, making the transition in his 50s uh, into being a, uh, a voiceover artist. And his name's mm. Phil Terrence, and he still works. He's probably uh, one of the, you know, he's, he's one of the greats at this point. Oh, uh, you wow. know, a lot of these, a lot of these very talented announcers, unfortunately, have passed on. Uh, like, uh, you know, so like, there's, uh, you know, like like Don Lon Fontaine in a world. And right, a lot right. of these guys are kind of, uh, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s and 80s and they're retiring and or passing away. Uh, so Phil Terrence is climbing the ranks in a kind of a grim sort of way. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, so we kept on trying to get lunch together um, and he was trying to find me a job in post-production. He didn't know what to really do. And then uh, he, uh, he finally, uh, you know, had to cancel lunch again. But he said, you know, um, I will tell you that, uh, I was just at a place, and I'm pretty sure it's like around the corner from where where where'd you say you lived. And at the time, I lived in trashy ass Burbank, and uh, I was just I told him kind of where I lived, and he goes, "Oh my God, they're around the corner from you, and they're losing their assistant uh, to uh, he's becoming an editor. Uh, you know, why don't you call this number?" And it was a place that uh, at the time it was called Cellulite Heroes, and the, the, uh, the CEO was a guy named Jordan Levine. And uh, he runs a place uh, in Hollywood now that's uh, it's called Stampede Studios. And he told me, it would be great for you to come in. You know, it sounds like, you know, you're brand new to this town. And, you know, let's just see what you can do. So they gave me, uh, they, they gave me a job. Um, it was a union shop. So they gave me kind of this sort of uh, off, 
non-union off-the-books assistant editor job. And there was kind of a little bit of a word salad with uh, that that Biazzi would probably not love. But, uh, you know, instead of me being an assistant editor, which is, of course, a union position. But they do this with a lot of, uh, of guys starting out. They called me a finisher, which means that I was sort of this strange last line of defense. Uh, and I would have to basically take every ounce of coffee that that my body could absorb and just become this this sort of paranoid jackass all day that would be uh, you know my responsibilities would would uh, you know were, were pretty vast and it was in a way still the hardest thing i had to ever do uh, because i had to learn trial by fire you know because we uh, we they started me off in a very busy time let me just describe this shop very quickly. So this was compared to many of these other large trailer houses, like Trailer Park that everyone right. knows because it has the biggest sign ever. It's right. kind of near the CNN Tower on Sunset Boulevard. It's kind of near like, it's, I think it's, it's near like Sunset and, High, and Highland. Um, and those places have 100 edit bays and 30 assistants. And they have like probably 15 petabyte servers and all this crud. it's like oh my god they have like probably three floors it's just crazy i've worked at a lot of these giant giant huge companies before this one was four, five edit bays one chem which is kind of like a like a like a 35 millimeter little flatbed editor that um was, it's uh, it's it compared to a steam back it's this german one um and then you know, it was some gal answering the phone and uh, <laughs> and four editors and then Jordan, who's like the principal of the, the company. And then myself, this only assistant editor is a tiny shop and some and some gal will come in every week and just do a payroll. Like it was. But don't it was you think that's better? Don't you think it's better that you were in something like that rather than the big, you know, McDonald's of it all? I don't I don't know. You know, so I have an identical twin. Um, it just like you if two identical yeah. so I have an identical twin and people ask me what it's like to um, grow up with a twin and uh, I, I always kind of um, I, I always kind of answer in a very coy way compared to what because that's something that personally is unknowable I right. would never know what, know what it would, would have been like if I got an assistant editor job like uh, at Pilgrim oh, Studios in North Hollywood, and I was there for a couple of years, and then they moved me up. I mean, it probably would have been very similar, but uh, in this case, it was. I was glad I started off in this very niche of scripted content because uh, it, I will say that, in case anyone is unaware, it's rare for editors to to kind of bounce out of their lanes. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's say that, like, if uh, if someone is a scripted editor, it's rare that they would become a promo and trailer editor. It's it's just it, it's something that is considered. Um, it, it would be considered just kind of uh, the, the, you know, your rare. niche. Yeah. It's almost like your niche, and people don't yeah. let you out of that. Yeah, I would say that. Now, uh, are there exceptions? Of course, there's exceptions to everything. That's great. But uh, at the same time, I will say that it was uh, it was kind of a fun thing to work in this neat little part of the trailer world and understand you know, that, you know, it's like this two minutes of content is really cool and it's, uh, it's really neat. But, you know, I had to learn how to work with film, how to work with videotape, how to work with standard definition, which was all they had at the time. And then this new HD thing was coming out. Uh, so it was just all these different formats and tapes and, 
you know, uh, you know, to this day, I will say that it was just, it was hardest thing I had to do because there was so much to learn in a very, very short amount of time. And frankly, uh, you know, I had to also make those little mistakes that one also makes in college, but I had to make them at an entry level job where it was okay that I was, you know, making dumb mistakes and not getting fired. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, but don't you think also the people who you were working with were in your position at one time too? I mean, everyone, everyone. Yeah. Again, some of them not. And you, but the thing is you can actually tell now uh, almost 20 years into my career, I can actually tell to this day the people who were never assistant editors. And that's just because (laughs) they're kind of, uh, generally many of them are not very tech savvy Hmm. and uh and i will say with with certainty that many of them um are not very organized and that is very problematic organization is it's it's next to godly in in this uh because uh you know something that we always uh, talk about is um something we always talk about is uh it's a you know a bit of a dark thing of course but you know whenever we have um, a project organized, then uh, we're always just like, you know, any of us could just get in the back. Uh, this is, of course, during the pandemic, and if we're, uh, we are, uh, you know, all working from home when we can, but when we worked at offices, then, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we would uh, we would always be making sure that everything is organized because, yeah, it, it's a grim pr- prospect, but, you know, what if I get in a car wreck on the way home? What if I'm injured tomorrow? What if it's worse? Right. Yeah, it's like, where where is this stuff? It's critical to know where someone's latest work is in a, in a, in a digital environment. So, you know, well, it's, luckily it's in this, uh, luckily in this uh, profession that we have, you can never have a sick day. You can never really no. have a personal day or like your, you know, your brother's wedding or something like yeah. you can't really have any sort of life outside of this because that that camera's rolling. Yeah, it is. I used to think that, but uh, like, later on in my career, I started to kind of have this uh, this notion of of saying, uh, you know, that I couldn't, uh, that I actually can take some personal time, I th- and I think that's actually very important. That was the, that was one of my most important things later in life, especially in my late thirties, where I started to say, yeah, do I really want to? Do I really want to completely, constantly work my butt off on every single job? Well, of course we do, but uh, should there right. be a work-life balance? Absolutely, and that's that was one of the things I had to learn later later in my career. But, yeah. So I was, uh, you know, having said that, comma, I did, uh, I did probably some of the longest hours in my professional career ever um, working at Celluloid Heroes. I still have like an invoice let's say i used to kind of invoice the company even though i was you know on the payroll but mm. they would need to know especially for uh records how long certain jobs would take um and even though we were a, a place that made movie trailers we did we did actually we made a documentary once um with this uh director um who was kind of newer at the time and now a lot of people know this guy in the horror world his name's mike mendez um and uh it just just one of the funniest goofiest guys to work with and he uh, he was like i have this hell of a movie and uh it's it's called uh, masters of horror which of course showtime uh you know made an entire series oh yeah called masters of horror but it, it was sort of loosely based on this documentary uh and it was uh the documentary was technically i think a sequel to another documentary about horror movies um that, that and it was hosted by Bruce Campbell. So we, we they shot Bruce Campbell over at one of those spooky shops over in uh, in Burbank, and then uh, then we started the task of understanding 
like what I was saying before, that Mike Mendez is a hell of a director, but he is not a very organized editor. And we <laughs> realized he had cut quite a bit of the documentary on his own on these little videotapes. And he did it on a program that's called Final Cut Pro, which is kind of like the, the redheaded stepchild of the editing world uh, that no one wants to talk about because uh, it, it's, a, it's a little bit loosey-goosey. And we realized that out of the, I don't know, 90 tapes or so that he had uh, um, digitized, he had labeled every one of those tape, tape 001. What? <laughs> so, and God bless him. He, you know, he just didn't know. But, you know, we were like, we had to do this thing that is called overcutting which means that i had to and this actually was my job that means you have to visually eye match you know every single shot using the master tape again based on you have to take a cut from like this other program that has no reference point at all you have to figure out what tape it came from you have to actually go and by by eye you have to match up because whatever tape he had, it wasn't the complete scene. Like he divided. It wasn't. He wasn't really using the master tape. He was. Uh, he wasn't really using full resolution. So we had to bring the tape in again, uh, you know, with the proper reference and something that we call time code, which, uh, of course, is a computer generated code right. that, uh, that corresponds with uh, something called Vitsy. It's, it's kind of laid in on the videotape so that later when we're getting ready to finish the show. And, uh, you know, we can go back and uh, reference it in much higher resolution and we can, uh, you know, re-digitize the tape that way. But uh, maybe I should take the moment to actually talk about what the responsibilities are. Should we talk about now how a show is edited? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was I was going to get to that in the in a in first who yeah. who hires you? Sure. Yeah. Because um, so, I know like lately I feel like when I start a project. A couple weeks later, the editor's already starting because now they can edit so quickly. The dailies and everything, they're getting a jump on everything. So editors are in pretty quickly. Like, post is there. Yeah, but of course we know why. And that's because if uh, if there ever a problem and you had to reshoot something, you need to know pretty damn fast. In the past, you know, we would get, you know, the, the film would go into the bath overnight uh, you know, you would get work prints, uh, it would have to get digitized and then it would go, this is the recent past. It, yeah. It I mean, go, people would get dailies, you know, the next day or day after I feel like, like I'm thinking just when I worked on bones and that was like yeah. mid two thousands, late two thousands, yeah. we would get dailies. I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm not, it's not archaic. I'm just saying now it's like it's almost by the end of day they have like what they just shot and can look at it overnight yeah, it's crazy yeah, they can. i mean my, yeah. my friend mark Lulkin is uh you know like he is so good at uh, in, uh he and his wife work uh, well no he, he works over at efill in atlanta now and he and his wife moved to that that atlanta office but before that he was so he was so good at um at color correcting dailies which is something that was not done until probably the last 10 years he was so good at color correcting dailies roger deacons literally fly his ass oh, wow. all over the planet to to do this he was the only one that roger deacons who of course is probably one of the most prolific uh well, cinematographers yeah. ever he was the only one that he trusted um do so you this think that do you think that being able to get these uh dailies and edits quicker is harder because now you have more time and more eyes can get on it. Whereas before maybe the editors had time to really work with the takes and work with, 
the scenes rather than the input of like, oh, it's like, I don't know, too many eyes on it now. Do you think that that is a thing? That's a good question. From what I do know, let's say that um, I do know that pro- producers do sometimes like to, to this day, they like to take a peek at, uh, yeah. at uh, yeah. you know, but, you know uh, but they also want to see how everything's running on set. They, they want to work with UPM. They want to make sure that if, uh, I say, I would say that the producers do check in early on in the edit process, uh, you know, especially still while, while shooting. Now, um, so we were just talking about um, that technology and how it's changed. I think now is a good time for me to kind of talk about um, kind of this uh, strange moment that happened um, a little over nine years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was uh, March 11th of 2011. Um, and it was one of the, the, the darkest days, um, you know, uh, in in my industry, to say the least. And that was because, uh, you know, something that was kind of unthinkable changed the industry very quickly, similarly to this pandemic, really. But um, it was devastating. And it was, uh, there was a little area on the planet, um, which is, I think, closest to a place that I think you call a toku um, in northern Japan and the mighty hand of God, um, <laughs> offline and destroyed uh, the six videotape factories on the planet that make videotape. And they also killed about 19,000 Japanese people Jesus. in this tsunami. And, um, you know, I remember it, it really was kind of like life imitating art. And uh, it was like out of a movie because I was working at this uh, this place at the time called Three Ball Productions, which is where... And it was uh, the, the place that you know did things like The Biggest Loser, and I was working on another show at the time. Um, and all of these phone banks, I was uh, my office. We all have private offices, of course, because it really drives people crazy with all the noise. Uh, so my office was kind of near these phone banks where all these post production supervisors for each show, and there were probably about five or six shows going on at the time, and a couple of TV pilots. And uh, and I saw every phone ring at the same time. And all these people just kind of like, uh, kind of, and my door was open, and I, so I could see just these strange looks uh, that people were giving. And on the other end of the line, it was uh, people probably at Comtel Media or something up in Burbank, which is a huge warehouse of videotape. And it's like all of these vendors just calling each post and saying, "Okay, I, uh, you know, I, I can't raise anyone in northern Japan. I think they're dead." I can't, I don't know when I can get you any new tape. I have, I have 4,000 loads. Now I can give you 4,000 loads, camera loads. I can give you 6,000 camera loads for loser of this format. I can give you, you know, 2000 of IMX 60 minutes, 60 minute IMX camera loads. And I'm I sure the price went up. 100 HDK SR masters at this price. And then I don't know when I'm getting any more. Got it. And we're, we just kind of, we're all just like shaking. We're like, Jesus Christ, like 20,000 people are dead. We're watching this shit on the news. And we're like, what happens when we run out of tape? Yeah. So, and, uh, it, so it became, uh, you know, and this is where we started to see the adaptation. Because you can't the reuse industry. the tapes. What you you can. It was called, what did they call it? Oh my gosh, I should have. I mean. I, I, oh, it was called evaluated stock, which means it was a kind of a fancy, ambiguous term, which would mean that they checked out, sort of like spot checked the integrity of a tape to make sure. And, and like, I don't remember how they did this, but this is what E did a lot, where, you know, of course, uh, E had all these daily programs. So they would actually blow over <laughs> like masters of like talk soup and stuff. It was like, it was like, they were like, ah, no 
no one's gonna watch that again it's like they would so they they would just have this reevaluated stock and they would blow over it a few times and i think there were check boxes of how many times they had taped over it oh my and god that was about it yeah so but oh that god. so it was that was one side of the adaptation there was another side of the adaptation that was um you know relatively new where people were taking um they were taking they were moving to cards so they were taking especially at this time was when dslrs which is of course you know kind of like uh you know this this digital single single lens reflex cameras uh which are you know they made these these canon cameras instead of like having sort of these professional huge big body cameras and you could actually take these fancy little hd cameras and set them up in the field and it would look sort of cinematic and not like a news finder sort of thing so uh, uh, that actually afforded the possibility of this thing that we call run and gun in the field and especially in, in reality shows where that was where we would see these alaska shows coming up and you would have these these gopros that you would have a, a one producer just running around in the field and mounting like a a uh, you know mounting a dslr on a plane and you know having another one on a rig and having like a couple of gopros and he would just you know throw everything in a backpack that was muddy and full of ice and they would come back weeks later and be like i got a story you know and, uh, so they, they would they would kind of grab all this footage and we would put it onto hard drives and the hard drives were an archive and the hard drives were being shelved and then that would be transferred over onto a server and we would have backups of everything and it would, then it would go to another backup at the end of the show but yeah that was how we had to adapt within i would say only a matter of maybe two months we had wow to yeah, it was fast. And do you think, like, jumping ahead, jumping ahead with, like you were saying, like, GoPros and, like, how everything has advanced, that the, you have enormous amounts of footage now to, when you edit? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, would you like to kind of talk about the numbers on that? Oh, yeah. I would love to hear that. Okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's got to be insane. Uh... <laughs> okay. Like, uh, you know, in, in the scripted world, Terrence Malick notwithstanding, I'm looking at you, Terry Malick. I love your films, but my God, do you yeah. know how many? You, uh, okay, the guy no. shot a million feet. Of film. He shot a million feet of film for the Thin Red Line. He made basically 12 movies because, on average, I would say the most films are shoot about 100, 150,000 feet of film. And uh, and uh, you know, let's say that you're shooting usually on. I, what would you say? Maybe for the scripted world, maybe a five to one ratio. And by, by this ratio, I mean how much you've shot versus how much actually ends up in the damn movie. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it yeah, depends. It depends one, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, it depends on yeah. what show you are, but yeah. I would think 30% on average is edited out just timing yeah. and story cuts and shit like yeah. that. Yeah. And especially on, uh, you know, especially on, uh, on, on TV shows, yeah. uh, you know, doing, if you're doing a, a feature, then of course a feature is, uh, you know, I, I think that they're a little more liberal with, with budget, obviously. So they, uh, they tend to shoot more, uh, they tend to spend sometimes a little bit more on certain scene work, but you know, that's changing too. Um, mm-hmm. but one thing that I saw constantly in the, the TV world, especially reality TV, uh, which was amazing, um, was that because unscripted requires um it requires someone to navigate the story in a giant sea of footage um we shoot anywhere from a ratio of 10 to sometimes 50 to 1 um we we shoot basically all day with several cameras i mean um i'll just uh i'll I'll give kind of like for every so for every minute that airs there's 50 minutes not aired that's correct. Wow. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. yeah. And that, and that's on the low end. I mean, shit. I've worked on some of those Alaska shows where you just swear that they sh- they just set up cameras like for like a couple of years and then just come up with like a, like a ratio of seventy five hours of for every one. I've seen I've seen things like that where it's just there's uh, there's people who go out there and their job is literally to um, you know set up uh, like set up time lapses and just hang out and share a joint with somebody. <laughs> like, well, yeah. I mean. You have no, there's no boundary for it, especially in, in like editing Expedition Unknown. You're, you're almost, I mean, you have the scenes sort of set up in some sort of script, I'm thinking, but there's plenty of unknown. Yeah. That no, you're just uh, trying no, to capture uh, we're, we're, the moment, you know, the, or the yeah. second of it. Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, I, I'm under NDA on, on, on most of these shows, of course, but I can say that I think I could probably explain that uh, a show like Expedition Unknown, which is of course still on with uh, with Josh Gates uh, and is, is produced by Ping Pong Productions for uh, you know for Discovery. Now it was the flagship of Travel Channel in 2017. Travel Channel was bought up for 12 billion dollars by um, by. Uh, by discovery in order to compete with their direct competitor which is a and e networks which owns history channel of course uh but when we were working and then they, they, they all the good stuff that was on travel percolated over into uh into primetime discovery so that's how that happened but uh you know working on that show you know off and on over the last five years um it's uh, that's actually you know let's let's just say you know for obvious reasons we we go into that show planning for a number of months uh and, and you know this is this is something that every everyone who knows that show knows because they, there's a plenty of behind the scenes stuff uh where if you work on that show you're in the you're in the movie kid you know, like <laughs> like the crew is in the show all the time but um I would say a show like that, for obvious reasons, you have to plan it ahead of time and know kind of your subject matter and know whom you're going to be meeting with. And you have to know scene by scene with the logistics of flights and all this other stuff and passports. You have to know kind of what you're going in and doing. But at the same time, no, we, we don't uh, we, we don't know what the hell we're doing on Expedition Unknown. Uh, my, my friends uh, Jesse and Mark edited, uh, you know, the past this season that's airing now. And I, I did a little a couple of pieces of it. Uh, this this um, this past January as well, but I mean, yeah, they they, uh, they they edited an episode that's that has aired at this time, and uh, where there was a guy who bought up um, who bought up some land uh, in like a in um, in Normandy, and after all these years, after what seventy five years, uh, he was like, "What's that pipe?" And he found out that it was a giant network of German bunkers. We didn't know that. It's like, no, yeah, it's like we knew that that was there, but you know, he we we opened a couple of them that had never been opened in seventy five years. So uh, you know, when and I actually That's got the crazy. privilege to work on an episode uh, where the, uh, the the Sultan uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, who uh, was a Sultan in the fifteen hundreds and uh, was probably the most important part of the Ottoman Empire, um, he, uh, you know, we, where we actually discovered this crypt. Um, that's now in Hungary, actually. Uh, and we discovered it on camera, and it was just one of the, the most incredible, touching things to, to really see uh, the sort of boyish excitement that everyone loves about Josh Gates because it's it's sort of like this this great, uh, you know, big American spirit and a guy that has, like, a, a huge smile. But also that show wouldn't work without Josh at all because he's also the executive, the exec, executive producer of the show. And I guarantee you that man knows every frame that sh- that was shot he has a very very good photographic memory and he knows everything that uh, that was done 
Well, yeah. and that's probably tremendously helpful and not like, you know. But then, so let's look back at a show that's actually on the air again now on USA, which is called The Biggest Loser. Yeah. And uh, it, which was uh, created uh, back in 2004, but it was sold to, to NBC by uh, Ben Silver. I think I watched almost every season until they got rid of Jillian. And then I kind of was like on and off. And then I have this season recorded, but I haven't, or, you know, I can DVR it, whatever. Um, But I haven't watched it yet. So that was one of those shows where, um, uh, and this is a long time ago, so I'm sure it's okay for me to say, but they were, uh, you know, the first season of that show, unbeknownst to most people, that was actually started off as being kind of a smaller show. Um, you know, where uh, NBC was like, yeah, it might be cute. It might be fine. Uh, and so uh, they, I don't think it had aired yet, but uh, I think that they, they, okay, no, that's not what had happened. They, it was not airing yet, but they started to look at some of the cuts and they were realizing that what they had was gold and that they were like, this has the potential to be as big. Well, yeah, as, you get to that second, third week, of course, on CBS. you get to that second, third week of like when the people plateau and they're working their balls off. And they're crying, and it's a sin. That's good yeah, TV. And, and it was amazing. It's good TV. So, uh, you know, and that was sold without a pilot or anything like that. So it was just, uh, you know, they, they just knew that at the time, they just knew that, um, they just knew that, uh, what do you call it? They, they knew that, like, that J.D. Roth it was uh, a very capable producer. J.D. Roth, of course, we know him as, uh, you know, being yeah, this uh, teenage host from, um, from, um, Nickelodeon from the 80s Fun and, uh, yeah it, and you know then became uh, this kind of uh, TV producer and mogul and you know it, I'm still very close with him to this day you know it, he's, he's still producing TV and uh, or was it Finders huge... Keepers it was Finders Keepers I think I, I think know. he did that but he also did uh, he did uh, Funhouse Oh, it was fun. Yeah. Of, of TV's yeah, uh, on Nickelodeon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know a few other things, and you know he also was uh, he's still very chummy to this day with like uh, Mark Summers from Double Dare, mm. and I met, got to meet the man once. Oh, uh, that's a but, good one. You know we um, so uh, you know I was an assistant editor under him, and you know then I became an editor, and I, I loved working with that guy. I just saw him like a few months ago before the pandemic, and you know it's it, it's it felt like old times. It really is good to it's it's just it's just all smiles. Um, so uh, you know. I think that at that time in 2004, NBC looked at some of the some of the cuts and looked at some of the stuff that they had, and they said they're like, "Oh my God, here's more money." So then it went from I don't know maybe about four, uh, like a four camera show uh, and to like a nine camera show. And by what am I what am I talking about here? What I'm talking about is multi cam show, multi cam editing, where if you're trying to think about it in a sense of you're trying to think about multi cam editing in a sense of sort of um, recording these amazing moments, just like they do in, uh, in in a scripted show, but because of the volume of that, then uh, you, you can imagine how much content you can get. Well, yeah, I mean, you have what you start out with ten contestants. You got to watch them work out. Yeah. You're literally watch you. You are watching ten people one day. That's ten days. You know what I mean? Like I don't. know, That's how I think of it. Of like. Were they with, with that trainer, and now they're with this trainer, and now you got to go through all of this footage just to get that one bead of sweat that came down perfectly <laughs> to yeah, show so, how so hard that guy's working out. I, so let's let's talk about that number for for a second. Yeah. 
so let's talk about. You know, I, I'm, I just pulled out. Uh, I know I sound distracted for a second, so uh, it's because I pulled out my calculator uh, on, my, on my iPhone. So uh, let's say that we got nine cameras uh, that are running. Um, you know, let's say that they're shooting um, most of the time. Uh, you know, out of a like a, a like if they're shooting on twelves. So let's say that each camera shoots. Let's say each camera shoots nine videotapes. So that's eighty-one hours a day. So you're shooting yeah. eighty-one hours. 81 tapes a day, 81 loads. You know, so you shoot nine hours of tape with nine cameras. Now, uh, so let's say that you're shooting five days a week. That's 405 tapes. Now, <laughs> Biggest Loser shoots for about, uh, I'll just say, several months. I, I don't want to. I don't want to reveal exactly how long. I think it's like three months. Most, it's like 12 it's, yeah, weeks it's, or I, it's. I would say it's. It's normally around 10 to 12 that's about uh 12 to 14 weeks so let's just go on the low end and uh so that's 405 tapes a week times 12 and uh that is 4860 hours of television kim that's insane that's insane i mean uh, uh, we were talking about the tape thing earlier i mean do you want to know what that looks like it's hallways full of tape well it's just it's uh yeah, it's hallways full of camera loads. But and, that uh, is so. When you have that, how many editors do you have on that show? Um, I would say that's a that's let's say it's on the bigger side. I uh, you know I don't want to completely reveal it, but I would say that you know we were usually uh, around between six to eight editors. That would then we would have a staggered start, and we would have about probably one lead assistant editor, or if it's a more complicated show, we would have two lead assistant editors who, of course, work daytime. And those things, especially back then, those those avid media composers we were talking about that were $70,000 each, and, you know, the rental on them was probably about 1200 $1, bucks back then. It's probably still around the same to get the desk in you. It's, it's, uh, on a weekly rental, you know, you better believe that those things are expensive. You've got to, you know, Get, you have to work those things hard and put them away wet every night. So assistant editors would be working largely at night digitizing these, these tapes. And it becomes, you know, that, that's a, it's a thankless job, but it's a, it's a very important one to run around and throw all these tapes in and then, uh, you know, set the resolution. You hit the, red, the big red button on Avid, which means you're recording the tape and it runs through the whole thing. And then you have to group all of these, which means, of course, like, let's say that, especially if you're shooting an event that's, uh, that's being covered, uh, at the same location by several angles, then we are grouping the footage together uh, to, so that we can look, uh, you know, simultaneously at, at a contemporaneous event, and you can see all of these different cameras that are covering the event, hopefully quite well. So, uh, you know, when you're putting together this show, what we do is we, after we group and organize this footage, then a group, a team of people that we call story producers. Mm. Um, the story producers will go through the footage um, initially. Now, this is not really something that's done in the scripted world. In the scripted world, that, that editor's job is to know um, every frame of footage, but that's because they're only shooting a few hours of footage, uh, you know, for, you know, at most for each right. scene. You know, it's, uh, you know it's, it's, it's not very complicated. An editor worth the salt should know what's been shot. And in a case like this, editors are expensive. So uh, they have these people, the story team of story producers and story editors, which uh, the story producer works about the story editor in the, the unscripted world. And uh, they will lay out, and a lot of times the story producer is the person who is in the field, they will lay out kind of a rough version of each scene or each act of television. Um, and so let's say that you had 
um, you know, a scene like in Biggest Loser that was uh, an elimination, which is usually that that was those eliminations were usually about seven or eight minutes on the clock yeah. um, for air. Yeah, it was, I'd say about seven or eight minutes. Scene. It's very tense toward the end of the two hour show. But then uh, a string out of that would hopefully be maybe 100 percent fat. So you talked about like maybe a 15 minute string out would be, um, you know, would be an ideal length. And then I would cut together like kind of a rough version of that. I would say a, a good editor can cut in the unscripted world ladies can cut together roughly three to four minutes on average of decent content per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that actually is a little slower than it's a little slower than the scripted world. I would say the scripted world, you can probably get to a rough cut. You probably get, I would say probably six or seven minutes a day. Uh, And that's just because, um, you know, and then you have to go back and finesse it. But uh, the friends of mine who uh, have worked um, in the scripted world on TV shows, they say on average, it's roughly around six or seven minutes that you can crank out a day. So it's quite a bit faster, but not like, you know, it's, it's, it's still it takes some time to, when to you, get something right. When you have, let's say, eight editors working together on all of this footage, how does continuity play in that? Like poorly. I I mean, I'm, uh, so, I I think so. I mean, yeah. Yeah, good question. So. Uh, is, uh, Let's talk about not just continuity, but let's wait. By, by continuity, do you mean uh, visually or just this the story itself? I'm, I'm. Well, I think visually, first okay. off. I mean, story wise, I think, especially with uh, like competition reality or um, you were saying like story editors, you have a certain you have the ending that you want to get to, and and you're doing this editing of build up to get to that. Yes. So that I would assume in continuity wise, you're doing whatever you can because even like, look, I watch a lot of, I watch a lot of, uh, housewives. There's a lot of like editing of like looking at everyone's reaction to what this bitch just said, (laughs) you know, and it did, you know, that that didn't happen. Like she went and the, and then they went and then she looked like, you know, so I get that, but yeah. I, I so guess are we misrepresenting? So first of all, are, are we are we compressing time? Yes, absolutely. That's well within the rules. Right. Are we um, are we making someone look possibly better or bitchier or something than than they are? Yes, we can actually do that. I can't yeah, yeah. change the very core personality of somebody uh, in in an unscripted. Uh, oh yeah, world. yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, it's uh, you know, this is to to say that we do mis represent occasionally you know misrepresenting a you know a story uh, i'll say generally that's something that has been done and is is that ethical well uh you know we, we all know the uh that there's we, we all know the united states marine corps and how they have uh you know they have this sort of um you know they have a lot of these these they have a lot of acronyms in the navy of course but uh everyone knows usmc and whenever People are complaining and getting butthurt about certain things in the Marine Corps. So I've heard that this uh, phrase going around saying it actually stands for "you signed the motherfucking contract." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, it's the, not really same, reality yeah, that the the housewives the are getting applies, two hours. Yeah. So, yeah, they're getting like, two hours of makeup bef- before yeah. they do scenes, and I'm sure even with like Biggest Loser, the enhancement of the workouts and everything, and like 
I don't know, like, you're probably coming into a lot of it at towards the end of the workout when people are really tired and you're showing how they're struggling and shit. So, yeah, but that's part of why you're watching it. You're, you, you, you know, I want to see them made up. I kind of don't want to see them without makeup. And I, I want to see these people sweat. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, that's it's, why uh, I'm and, watching and, but it. But to get, to get that little five minute montage scene for example and montages are of course a, a really excellent tool that we use to, uh, to pass through a, to pass through a uh, an act uh you know so we're talking about something like a, a, a like some we're covering some simultaneous action that's happening concurrently with all of these different characters that we know in the show and we are trying to move the story ahead together with these characters now uh, let's say that's a five minute scene so that's probably going to be at least maybe a couple hours of footage you know to to get all of to get the best shots of that that's in focus right. or something that's uh, that has you know, has, you know that's that's showing someone uh, you know showing someone's teeth gritting or you know or god forbid there's like some kind of an accident or something um, you know on my actual uh, website then um, there's one scene that I had uh, you know that's kind of the opposite of that uh, where um, you know I, I think I have one of the intros for the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, I loved working on that on season 21 because it was this amazing controversial season because they had really broke, they had broke form and they had, uh, they had decided to shoot, um, they decided to shoot not in Vegas and they shot, they shot down in Florida and uh, they were using uh, different teams and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, casting wise, it was just a bit of a departure, but um, that was only kind of, they really had at most only a couple of cameras covering mm. that. Uh, it was, uh, so they had a very light crew. So, but it makes for a lot more dramatic moments because uh, the, the audience is kind of, uh, you know, having to find the story with someone running all around, uh, you know, with, with a single camera. It makes for a much more dramatic thing than it would for like a nine camera show. Right, and by right. that, I mean, toward the end of, of one of these teases that I was working on, uh, you know, then yes, we absolutely had, unfortunately we had one of the fighters uh, in our cast, uh, you know, named Steve Montgomery. Um, we, uh, he had um, an accident uh, with hydration, which is what a lot of fighters do when they are cutting weight to make that 170 weight. And this guy is 6'3", so getting down to 170 is uh, largely artificial, let's say. It's using a lot of <laughs> things that he unfortunately drank um way too much distilled water and when you are doing that you're not hydrating yourself there's no minerals and your body can't absorb it so he basically became dehydrated and on camera we had someone literally running uh with uh, with his camera while he was seizing in his bed oh and my he's, god he's fine now he's totally fine but when that happens uh you know there was a bit of a speed bump in his career because yeah with you sees you cannot fight for i think six months or a year um, yeah, so then, poor Steve. Then, yeah, so when you yeah. get, I'm sure it's not just in that show, but in editing, you must have a line sometimes, especially when you're, you know, you're editing reality. You must have a line of like, oh, is that too personal, or does that really relate to this show, or should we? Show- we. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. So there's we we do know, of course, that uh, you know this is doesn't really apply necessarily reality tv but it kind of does with uh where um, in 1995 on the jenny jones show then uh, there was a man this uh, this didn't 
ever air that the, the event happened uh, between uh, between the taping and uh, this, this event. And it is true that this guy had a secret crush on his friend and neighbor. And the friend and neighbor, uh, it was a homosexual, and uh, the friend and neighbor was heterosexual and had some mental problems. But uh, he did murder this man uh, in the days after the filming. And it, it was kind of did uh, have, a, there was a question of ethics of saying, you know, uh, did, uh, did, did, this company go too manipulate. far. Was this wrong? Right. Yeah. And uh, there's people, especially in the kind of in the early days of reality shows, people were asking uh, how you know, if if this was ethical, and uh, that's why, especially in some of my earlier shows that I was working on, we we did actually have those questions of like, are we moving the goalposts? Are we kind of screwing around with people? We've asked ourselves uh, like is this ethical do we have to really show something like this and right. i think that i'll just kind of respond to certain vagary and say you know that that's the that there's some networks i've seen where they have said some things that i really think are sometimes uh, not the most ethical thing to uh, not the most ethical answer um and then there's other times that i think that we in large part have made the right call mm-hmm I mean, it's a thin line, and I mean, and 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 thin, and by I mean thin, it's like you know, a second too long, or two seconds too long yeah. to, and you're holding that shot, or you you're holding that, just too long to make it uncomfortable, or abusing that person, or whatever. I mean, it it's a huge responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll uh, I can um, I'll just kind of talk about the, the the biggest example of when I really knew this was. Um, kind of a problem, and that was uh, when I was a lead assistant editor on a show that was had a couple seasons on, on MTV that was called Breaking Bonaduce. And oh, yeah. uh, that show, since this is 2005, right? So that right. show, we had a we had a conversation about it, um, and uh, the, I'll just say uh, the the pilot that we had that, that had been shot. This was when um, Danny was sober and uh, it was, let's just say that um, without giving anything away, I'll say it was a very different show. It was very tame. It was kind of, let's just uh, kind of say there, there may have been some moments of that was very like light. It, it made the Osbournes, which was on at the time, look, look heavy. Like it was, uh, it was, uh, it was just like, Oh, why is Danny or like, Oh, look, Danny Bonaduce is delivering a pizza on an Aston Martin. Oh man. He's crazy. Like, Oh man, is he going to go in and eat the pizza with the people? That's nuts. Why is he doing that? And then we started to shoot the first season of the show and the, the guy was like, and this was on camera, and it was actually, you know, was, was shown. So I could say, yeah, th- that was very real. And he was in- injecting something into his arms uh, that had uh, a picture of a horse on it. And it's because <laughs> he was doing the roids. He was doing lots and lots and lots of roids. And uh, he had um, been a, you know, a, a, he also, you know, decided um, to break his sobriety. Um, and he did it on camera very much in front of us. And, uh, he kind of knew that he loved being a spectacle and then he would have these horrible fights with, uh, you know, his wife at the time, who was named Gretchen. And, uh, 
you know, there's, you know, that was all, of course, displayed. Uh, you know, you could watch that show for yourself 15 years ago yeah. and find it. And, uh, and, you know, where he it's ripped the camera out of the hands of a young woman who was our cameraman. I think she was a steady cam operator. And he ran and just, you know, yelled at his wife in, in the closet with a cam- like a, a company camera. Uh, like uh, there's my friend Bill Hawkhauser was like the, the, the you know, like like they a lot of people thought it was fake. He would get into fights with Danny. You know, like, you know, and, you know, on camera in the middle of the night. And uh, and then, like, uh, he would be on the phone with our executive producer, uh, Troy Sear, who has had, like, a, a huge career ever since then. So, you know, we were all younger people that were just kind of, like, going, you know. Like, what the, is this? The post soup at the time <laughs> was saying, okay, I'm going to remind you guys. You guys have been really good about Biggest Loser, about not saying who's losing a lot of weight. You're not telling your spouses this. You know, people aren't going to Vegas betting on Biggest Loser. They're like, we're going to remind you that. You're under NDA for, for this thing. Uh, so, you know, that you cannot talk about this thing, you know, until it airs. But, yeah. you know, it's like this guy is doing these things are you know, sort of criminal acts. And, you know, we're not going to charge him for, you know, getting steroids and shooting up on camera. But, Jesus, this guy is doing self-destructive behavior. Don't tell your spouses about this. And we're like, okay. So it was, a, you know, it was a weird show to work on uh, because uh, there was kind of a, a, a question of, at what point do we step in? And, well, you know, yeah, I, on, I, I think yeah. that's your biggest problem is like morally, you know, a lot of times, you know, with the show like Intervention and you yeah. have all of that and, and that helps people and it, it definitely helps families of people who have drug um, problems and how to deal with them. So it's not that it's all bad and we're all bad people for watching them. It yeah. is examples of of this behavior that you know if you didn't see it you wouldn't believe it type thing yeah and, and it's it, it, it's something where um you know the, the, there's a question of um and then of course there, there's people who on the other end of things are you know where there's there's people who accuse um you know reality shows of, of being almost completely fabricated and silly and that was a kind of a different thing that had started i would place that roughly around two 2009 is when you started to see some shows that I may or may not have worked on, but some shows that were clearly utter fabrications and people didn't care. And then, the, uh, and then eventually the, like the biggest version of that sort of is, uh, you know, is, is Duck Dynasty, which uh, was on a and it was, you know, and that was pulling numbers of like, you know, like insane numbers, oh like God, 8 yeah. million and things like that. Yeah. And now that was, everyone knows that is, you know, it was a complete fabrication, but that's on a reality show. It's a reality show format. It's a comedy. It's so, and then, uh, and then things started to become more real again. And so there are all these different iterations and it was important. I think it's important. I would always urge editors especially newer ones starting out to know how to cut these different kinds of formats of shows because uh if someone looks on your resume they say well it's something that we, we call a build show for example which is like those car shows on on discovery mm. so if you don't if you don't really know how to cut one of these kinds of shows um then you're not going to get the job and someone else is so even though it's uncomfortable to constantly be looking for work and looking for a new show it's also uh, you know i could have been i could have cut on biggest loser for 15 years right i could have yeah i could have and i know people who did it was very cushy but you know getting off that you know getting off a big run of that and then it's like you know what what if you only had one show on your resume that's 
that's not good. Oh no, not I know. I I definitely think I stayed at Bones too long, but and and you lose contacts and you lose, you know, just working with different people and and different rhythms you get into with other shows and yeah. No, so, you got yeah, you got to well, you got to move and, around. And you know, and also finding, you know, in you know, navigating your career path over over a number of years with uh, with a lot of the same people and so it's it's about, you know, finding a really good team. I mean, yeah. I just came off of a show where a friend of mine was a showrunner on it and and i've known him longer than i've known my husband and that's that's 16 years so it's just kind of this uh, this funny thing uh where you know i uh, the, the people who are problematic to work with let's say they're the ones where you just yeah, i don't know where they're at but you know you, it get, word gets around yeah. town just like any industry word gets around town it's like oh that guy oh that gal you know, it's <laughs> like uh, not good to work with you don't play well with others it's not good but then you talk about um, how we work as a team, just like how you work with uh, as a team, and you have your, you know, and, and you have your gang boss and all those other crews, and you're working with, with people. I for have years, my Ethan. But, yeah, and like with Ethan, but yeah. uh, who, of course, is my husband was yeah. uh, on on the uh, on the show a few episodes ago. But uh, how it works with these teams and story producers, we already discussed you know, sort of how we plan the arc of the story and then we have what's shot and then we have the string out. Um, then during the editing process, um, in a perfect world, let's say that we would have three cuts that would go out, which it would, it would say rough cut, locked cut, fine cut that very rarely happens. It's normally far more um, edits and revisions that, that go up the chain internally than they go out to the network. The network, uh, you know, usually has several contradictory notes that we have to go through and figure out and then we you know we we adjust in some cases we reshoot if we have to and that's it so uh so in the in that process i am working with a story producing team um of varying scales that are doing one of two things for me and uh where they are usually either um working ahead and following the story you know in later acts of a tv show for example um or they're helping me find certain shots that are addressing notes or uh, uh and again this is post string out process when i'm when i'm going through and say hey that's good that's good that's not working that's not working or they're doing something else uh that is uh known quite well in the industry which is uh where i'm working with sound bites and we are editing these bites together um in a very uh, you know, you know in, in a very kind of difficult way. And it's something that we call Frankenbiting, um, <laughs> where we are, uh, it's like Frankenstein's monster. That's kind of like where that portmanteau comes from. So there's, there's other things like, uh, like music, for example. Right. Like, um, are you editing music in, or that's the music editor? Like, are you giving your cut over to, like, your final cut over, and then music is put in, and then that's... Big, bigger show like like especially like uh, like a star wars movie or something like that absolutely it's a whole other department in many right. ways. And, then, and, and then they're working with let's say more temporary tracks right is, is what they are. but uh for for a guy like me okay unscripted editors we have to wear a lot of hats we have to wear all the hats we have to um put together some in some cases effects titles we have to put together like all these um very very complicated things basically it's almost like being the 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 director sort of uh, yeah it's where we uh, we're given an incredible amount of agency over You're the post uh, director trust. yeah well and that's a whole other job actually but it's, <laughs> uh yeah but, but being an editor yeah i know what you mean you have to actually go through um 
the steps of not only creating this, uh, you know, this, this good story, roughing it out, smoothing it out, smoothing it down. Uh, usually, concurrently, you are scoring it with music. You're putting in sound effects. You're putting in just all these these pieces that. Okay, so those those like shows that they shoot for Discovery, like up in Alaska, that are just big, big, big shows, or like a big build show for 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 Discovery, especially. They love their big, crazy openings with big time lapses and aerial shots and things, and especially right. because of drones. I mean, like uh, even just 10, 10 short yeah. years ago, if you asked a if you asked a producer for aerial shots, he would have told you to go fuck yourself because it was about twenty <laughs> grand for a uh, for a helicopter and a There's mount too much. There's too much drone footage now you need yeah. your own like drone yeah, editor you can, yeah now you can yeah there's drone footage of everything which is amazing uh, but it's uh so yeah we have to you know put together so much and we have to use like especially sound effects and we have it's, it's one there's a lot of terms for it but it's one thing that we call it is layering uh, we're in, uh, adding just a little bit of texture to it uh, and then we have to go through and do a kind of a rough mix on this as well which is of course you know someone else's professional job to professionally mix something or professionally do an effects past you know visual effects or professionally do color correction mm-hmm. but sometimes we have to do sort of you know, rough passes at all of this, or we have to make, uh, you know, we have to go through and make, uh, you know, make these sound effects really work. And we have to, you know, figure out what this is going to look like in the finished product, which is what we call online editing, which is a kind of a throwback term to just, uh, you know, to putting these, remember what we were talking about an hour ago with tape to tape. It's, uh, it's, you know, where it's basically taking in the old world, we were taking several decks in a giant machine room and literally putting the show together shot by shot. It's obviously done, uh, you know, digitally now. And we just kind of relink to the, uh, to the high res footage and someone with, uh, you know, someone with a, a color correction system will color correct it. And at the same time, usually at the same facility, they will, there's someone else who will do a sound mix pass, and they'll, they'll do any smoothing. They'll usually add the narration at some point around there. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the process um, that, that most of these shows have to go through. Jesus. Yeah. I, I mean, you have, you have so many intricate little things to do. It's, and, and it seems that, like I was saying in the beginning, like post comes on so early now. Fuck, man, you need all that time. Yeah, we do. But, uh, but then again, just like, uh, you know, I think that, <laughs> any any producer would acknowledge this uh, is that our schedules are getting um, you know tighter, do quite you, a bit tighter. Do you do you think that in our new little world of you know COVID that you will? I would assume they'll have some editors work from home now. At least um, in, all of us have to. Yeah, yeah. At least in this, you know, until we get it going and maybe get a vaccine, whatever. But do you think that will make you work longer hours? <laughs> Don't you think you'll work I, more? Yeah. Uh, we are all going through, um, we are all going through an adjustment disorder. Any, uh, you know, it's, it, anyone would know anyone uh, with any kind of uh, certification in some sort of uh, psychiatric medicine would know that much, most of the Western world is going through an adjustment <laughs> disorder. So it, it is true that like literally anything in this pandemic seems like it takes three times as long. But I did finish a show that was uh, that is airing 
in July. Uh, it's it's, it's the, uh, the reboot of History's Greatest Mysteries, and we have Lawrence Fishburne uh, hosting it. And unfortunately, oh, we uh, you know, I don't think we can shoot any host wraps on, so he's just narrating it now. But, uh, uh, you know, in future episodes, I'm sure he'll be hosting. At least that's what, what Deadline said. Uh, but, but we had to finish an episode, a uh, two-hour episode of History's Greatest Mysteries. Um, and uh, we had to, to finish it remotely, uh, you know, over over a number of weeks and months. And it was I was blessed to have work. There's a lot of people who don't have work, and we had to figure out a way to do this uh, remotely. And there's a number of programs that people use to uh, safely um, be able to access uh, these cuts and footage because it is quite true, of course, that um, you know, it, it, it causes a bit of an issue. Uh, so, and what do I mean by this? Uh, you know, it's, this is a standpoint of security. Um, right. Because where, nothing's tangible. Yeah. It's, you're talking about having to remote in on, on a show. That's hard. And, uh, it, uh, it's you know everyone's kind of zooming everyone's texting each other it, it's like i gotta look for this gotta look for this gotta look for this it's automatically adding some more time and that's yes of course emotionally especially in, in april when we were still adjusting through this pandemic then you know we're all a little bit better now it's the uh, and uh, because now it's the end of may but like if we um you know back in april we were all still kind of like sobbing once a day and stuff and, uh, right. you know myself right. included so yeah. it wasn't ideal but um but we got the show done and, it was, and that, that was great. So, uh, yeah, there's there's programs that people use, you know, especially using like a, a VPN, which of course means a virtual private network that can securely hook up. It, it, let's call it uh, creating an emulation or an instance of a machine uh, that's you know located very far away, and it can hook up to the server. And uh, there's a few programs that do that. One of them is actually from Hewlett Packard from HP. It's called RGS, and uh, you know where you you hook into a secure connection, and it feels like you're just connected to uh to uh, a machine but no you're on your your computer is just connected to this one that's i don't know 30 miles away and uh and it's a and that actually provided that latency is not an issue which is of course the time between a user has performed an action and for the computer to respond as long as the latency is below a certain amount um then i won't shoot my monitor so (laughs) uh yeah it's because that's actually very frustrating that's something that uh, you know latency is a very uh, important thing and we'll talk about that when we talk about you know some of my new career uh, paths as well but um yeah it's it it is kind of it's it's something that we uh that uh, it's all important you know it's uh, in order to be able to efficiently and successfully create um, a, like a TV show remotely, you no, know, we we are having to figure this out on the go. But you know, damn it, this is America, oh, and yeah. you know, we, we we have we we figured out how to go to the moon. We can put a TV show show together remotely. I I think yeah, I think we're all going to be very surprised actually how much we don't need to interact as much. I mean, definitely <laughs> on some things, it's it's inevitable and you have to. But you know, I. As I've said, you know, with working with buyers or I'm sure working with other people in your department, you can be on the phone, you can, you can, uh, you know, FaceTime, you can, and if you're sharing screens and stuff, even, yeah, I mean, yeah, but there's, there's also certain things that are not ideal. Um, oh no, and, by any means, and that it's is, not ideal. Yeah, it's, so let, let's talk about, um, kind of a part of what my job is and it's similar to, it's similar to your job, your profession, is that um, the best 
a lot of people would say that the best production designer is, uh, is someone where it's not that you don't notice the design. It's that you just notice it enough and that, uh, yeah, that the set is really, really cool and it stands out, but right. it's not distracting. Right. Yeah. Now, right. so my job is very similar where I have to work with the pacing. I have to work with, uh, you know, figuring out, um, you know, when to cut to the next shot. I have to work on when to bring in the sound bite, when to, you know, especially act out is what we call it, where, you know, it's the end of the act and it's a big cliffhanger sometimes, you know, like, you know, uh, where Dorinda is about to like throw a drink in someone's face. Uh, so, uh, yeah. uh, so all of these, um, all of all of these things are important, uh, but when we're trying to craft this together remotely, it's there's something that I've noticed that's happening that's not ideal, and that is that talking to someone on the phone, and um, or you know even zooming with someone and someone's just kind of watching my cut, there's a weird sort of stress, and it's because I, I can't really put my my place it exactly, but I believe it has to do with um, having the presence of another human in an edit bay and us just figuring this whole thing out together. Mm. Um, this, uh, you know, uh, just like, just like I have to look at, just like you have to look at certain, um, very small imperfections within, uh, you know, it's like, Oh, that, uh, that flower vase is very pretty. And, uh, you know, that I have to really face well, the yeah. plant this way and all these little things. It's like picking out furniture online. Yeah. Going I'm looking it. at small, yeah. I'm looking at small subtleties in someone's face. I'm looking at all these things, but, uh, you know, on a, on a, you know, on a screen, but at the same time, I have to read a room full of people. Sometimes I have to, I have to get a read on how a producer is taking, you know, this is, is taking a cut. And I, you know, that's, that sort of thing can simply not be done uh, in a, in a world of remote working of telepresence and things like that. Mm. Uh, Now that's an excellent point. Reaction, like, like genuine reaction to things we are missing. Yeah. And uh, and something where that's, I guess what I'm getting at, you know, it's not like I'm some kind of a hippie or something like that, but it's, it's this weird sort of um, human touch that is not present in remote work. And uh, I think that that's, first of all, something that can definitely contribute a bit to stress, but it's also, uh, it's something that uh, I think that's possibly why it does seem to take a bit longer to really get the damn thing done uh, is because, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I have my own best judgment. This thing that's, I would say, just like with your profession, I, it is in, it's instinctual at this point yeah. uh, like yes. the, uh, yeah avid media composer is literally an extension of my body um you know there's there there's uh there's keyboards that people can buy that of course have all the commands on them and uh and i i almost ask myself why uh, my uh, my keyboard <laughs> is completely blank and i mean you're t- it's like jesus you're, you're talking about the software that i've that uh, that I've, I've worked with for um you know, for over since 1998, 22 years. Do, do, I mean, right. For crying out loud, do you think, do you not, does your hand not know what C does at right. this point? Like, <laughs> yeah, so, no, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having to really um, work fast and efficiently um, on this, this thing. Uh, it has to, it has to be um, so instinctual and uh, that, and that's, that's why uh, reality editors, uh, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time to put together a hell of a show and, 
you know, we have to get very good and very fast. Um, and by, and by that, that's why, you know, some of the, some of the best good and fast editors are also pretty expensive. Uh, you know, it's, so it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, the, the, the old adage goes, uh, you know, it's like fast, uh, fast, cheap and good pick any two. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, so no, I mean, uh, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that with any kind of boasting, it's just, it's a fact well, that no, you are. been around here for a couple of decades and people still hire you, then it's, you know, probably not for your good looks. But you, know, it's, you it, but going off of that, you, you know what the, what the, um, <laughs> you know what the keyboard does. You don't have to look, you get hired every, you have a reputation for being a good editor, yet you took another path recently to go into yes. VR. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. So, um, let's, you know, how can I kind of surgically explain this? Uh, so, um, and the other thing I'll say is strangely enough, a lot of editors, I know not a lot, but I, I could name probably five or 10 of them, uh, who have gone into VR as well. And, uh, you know, we've still not necessarily figured out, um, the, the strange question of why, um, yes, in 20, starting roughly 2015, I would say 2017 is when I went hard into VR and to, and by this, I mean, interactive virtual reality and, and uh, cause there's a couple of different kinds. Um, you know, there's 360 video and stereoscopic 360 video, and that's not very interactive. And it's, that was, it's kind of the, the virtual reality of, of, of some of the earlier attempts at virtual reality. Uh, in 2014, there was, uh, there were, there were a group of Google engineers who I believe were in France. Um, and Google lets you dedicate, uh, air quotes, yeah, 20% of your week. So one, one whole day a week, which is probably not likely, it's probably more like a few hours a week. Cause you know, if you're working Google, you're very busy. I've been there up in Mountain View. Uh, they're, they're, uh, it seems like fun, but they're working on, they're cranking. Uh, so you are given one day a week to work on a personal project. And these two Google engineers decided, Hey, VR is really stupid expensive, but let's see if we could find a cheap, cool way to do this. And they, they engineered this foldable, little cardboard thing and then it's well, let me ask you something it's it whatever they're working on personally does google own <laughs> no oh, no, no, oh okay no it could uh yeah i mean you can you can pitch it to them and they can buy it but no, oh. no they have been working on their own project in this case google bought it mm. but uh they um at least i think that's how it works Gosh, <laughs> I, I mean I, I actually don't quite know the answer to that question but i, I believe you do have some stake in it yeah. at least uh so these, these two engineers uh, they debuted this thing at, at like a huge google event in 2014 and they uh, they said uh and they're like here's this cool thing uh we're, we're a couple of engineers from france we decided to make this thing we're presenting it here in mountain view and by the way literally everyone in the room there's one under your seat you know throw your damn phone in there it's so, yeah. uh yeah and uh, they're like it costs like like three cents to make these things you know like we can send it to you know developing nations if we wanted to it was pretty cool uh so that's that was one cool cheap big way for vr to kind of hit the masses it kind of like everyone got one i think and then there was there was some upgraded ones uh that was uh, like gear vr for example which was uh, the first thing that was shipped by the company that we it's owned by facebook now that we know as oculus now let's talk about oculus in kind of that same time span um there was a there was a man, a very young man, who actually was uh, a teenager. Uh, he was, I think, he was fifteen or sixteen, named Palmer Lucky, and he's just, just this uh, this uh, this goofy nerdy guy from Orange County. And uh, his parents had uh, the means to buy him like literally every random VR headset, uh, you know, in existence, including these crappy cardboard things. But uh, you know, no, no, sorry, that was, was a little bit before that. So this is twenty thirteen, I think, roughly when he was 
literally destroying these headsets and then finding the best parts of them. I'm kind of, you know, you know, glossy over a lot of things, but in large part, this is what happened is that, you know, he, he ripped everything apart. He figured out how everything worked. And then he said, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take positional tracking from this one, but the displays on that one are really good. And the, but these lenses are really cool. And, you know, and that's really cool. And the, the, the sound system on that's really neat. And, but you know, this is just a little bit faster on that. And I think if I work with an NVIDIA processor on a computer and I have this 12 foot cable, I can do this. And if I have, if I use this sort of IR system, then the sensors are going to find me and, uh, and I'm not going to throw up. So it's like, he had to figure out how to make a VR headset and he like, like literally went to a hotel room, I think in Vegas, and like strapped, like literally duct taped a couple of them together. And, uh, and then at CES uh, in, in 2014, January 2014, I think then he uh, he debuted it. And uh, so many people were so blown away, including a man named John, John Carmack, who actually worked uh, at id Software. He actually created this video game, Doom. He left his job and like became the CTO of the company. And then Facebook bought him the next year for $2 billion. So they, they believed in this. Uh, it, it, it was a long-term investment. They believed in this, <laughs> this, uh, this product very early on. Uh, so I, I got bit hard by the bug 2015, 16, 17, 18. And then finally, 2018, I went back to school which is humble to do because I was 39 at the time. So I went back to school to um, learn as kind of a full-time student at a place that was called Upload VR. Uh, I I went to a brick-and-mortar school to figure out how to um, create these interactive digital experiences. And it was – it reminded me a lot of – this is something I had to do. Uh, I had to remind myself to kind of psych myself up every day to do something that was really hard. It reminded me of navigating this, this sort of unknown world that we were figuring out as we as we go, the world of Unscripted. Because in 2003, when it got into Unscripted, it was still relatively new. So Ryber right. had only been out for a few years. You know, we were still trying to figure out the rules for this. Now, I was in this new world that's not so new now, but, uh, you know, VR is only been around, some people would disagree with me, but VR has not even been around a decade. You know, we don't know you know, uh, where it's going to settle in the next decade. But, you know, it, we're learning more every day with, with uh, a lot of people playing nice with software and hardware and uh, game engines and all this other stuff. Now, um, you're getting in early. <laughs> yeah, getting in early. And that's fun. It's it, it's hard. But, you know, you own you know, you, you own all of the reward when you when you're putting that much risk into uh, into a new a new industry and a new profession. Now, um how is this similar to editing? Um, it's it's very technical uh, to create, a, like especially an interactive VR experience. I, I I'm not going to really speak too much about um, 360 video and uh, and stereoscopic stuff because the the lack of interaction I, I have a real problem with. There's a couple of game engines out there that are constantly competing. That are uh, one of them is called Unity 3D, and another one is called the Unreal Game Engine. Because what you're uh, what you're really getting into is creating these virtual worlds. Yes, you're, you yeah, want people to create. Yeah, you're creating it in software. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's correct. But mm-hmm. but you know, even though this is going to sound kind of like coy, but you know, I'm still creating in Avid Media Composer. I'm, I'm still creating something out of almost nothing it's a giant sea of usually very pretty footage but i have to figure out and navigate the story using a complex you're software. editing it you're editing, yeah, I'm editing the software yeah but i'm also not doing you know uh, something that 
you know, something that I will admit that's just very, very different is this is not only not only creating, you know, uh, a three D world using three D modeling tools and three D lights, which is something you could do in, in things like After Effects, for example. Which is uh, more and more editors have to know the Adobe system in After Effects, so you have to know a little bit about lighting and three D and textures and stuff like that. But in this case, it's a like a these game engines are these very robust pieces that are that are um, powered by you know a, a very big core of, of software so that you can uh, very robustly run um, you can create this 3d environment and um, the air quotes camera that is in these game engines in this case that is your VR headsets mm-hmm. so the, the camera um, is being controlled by someone's head and we have to figure out using a number of tricks we have to figure out where each of these uh, you know how how to give someone a good experience that first of all is not going to make them throw up, uh, which is, uh, you know, something that what we call the vestibular system, uh, which is your inner ear. And we have to, so we have to learn about the physiology of a a human being. You know, how, how are we making sure that someone's head is being tracked successfully? How high does that frame rate have to be, which, you know, in in television, you're looking at only about 30 frames a second And and in film, it's about 24 frames a second how high does that frame rate have to be before someone's starting to get sick it turns out you have to be you know north of 72 it's ideal it's if it's north of 90 frames a second 100 frames a second so that's extremely fast okay well uh, if it's if the frame rate's that high well the resolution has to drop down well how do i combat the lower resolution well i can change this and this uh, how you know how does sound work how you know so it's all these questions that we have to ask of how to convince someone more and more that they're in a virtual environment that they can interact with. Oh my God, how does interaction work? Can someone walk around? How does someone walk around without killing themselves in their literal home? Yeah. How do you, how do hands work? How do you track someone's hands? There's lots of ways we do that. There's companies out there now that actually that, that have these things you strap on and you just, it just tracks your fingers. How does feedback work? How do you tell a human being that, uh, you know, that, when, when their hand is touching a certain item or picking up an item, how does how do you convince someone that they they touch that up? Well, that's you know you have to use haptic feedback and it has to give it has to go at a certain time that is corresponding to a sound that you're hearing and and to uh, to an image that you're seeing and that's the limbic system which is a part of the central nervous system. So you have to understand so much about the human body and be a software developer and be a storyteller and understand how it visuals work. It seems like you went into it. something harder than you are already doing. <laughs> well, it's it, it's it's not worth it unless it's hard. <laughs> I mean, I'm it's, looking I looked at you know clips on your website and I mean, it's crazy of the things that you've just developed a whole world out of nothing. <laughs> like it's well yeah yeah but it's uh, but it's not really out of nothing just like just like with you it's uh you know this is coming from uh you know it, it, hopefully a, a team of people that uh, that uh, can get together and get along and figure things out but uh, a lot of times uh, uh if it's a smaller team like especially in the vr world then i'm having to figure this stuff out on my own you're having to figure these things out on your own i have to figure out exactly what you know what is the lighting like what is this room like yeah you know, i mean what is the architecture is you know if you want it right and you're even the architecture of like how does the door work does it was it you know swing left or right or i'm sure those are things that you're 
figuring out as you're going along and basing oh, yeah. these, these stories. And that's something out. that, you know, to, to get something off the ground, um, you know, I would say it does not take very long, but uh, the thing that does take a long time in the video game world in general and the digital entertainment world in general uh, and interactive entertainment in general, and uh, especially in the VR world, is uh, the is optimization. Uh, you know, it's like I can get something limping maybe in a few days, uh, you know, the, uh, 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 the core concept of something, for example, or if it's a game, like I could get a primary game mechanic and I could try that out, uh, you know, and, and, and do little test levels of this. And what happens when I just take a stupid rudimentary cube and I just put this together and move this over here and how, do, uh, you know, how does time work? Can I manipulate time? Ooh, I can. How do you do that? So it's, uh, it, it's, it's figuring out all these things in a kind of a prototype. And then, then you're going into production and figuring out how to make it really slick. And mm. uh, unlike television and movies this is storytelling in a lot of different ways but you're, you're giving the user the complete agency over the story uh, so um you might have a really cool you know heavily beautifully decorated scary haunted house but um you know uh, only the user can perform the action to actually you know advance that story Right. Uh, you know, it's like if you're if if a door is in front of someone and they have to they open up the little door and it goes and you just it's like <laughs> is there a monster on the other side? Well, it's, no, you, someone has to figure that out. It's like uh, what is that game that Ethan and I love from like the late '80s, Monster Mansion, or yes, yeah. Well, wait, what was that? <laughs> Something Mansion. Maniac, Maniac, Maniac Mansion. Mansion. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's like an updated version of that. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, and uh, those whole things like Leisure Suit Larry and uh, the, yeah. the guy who actually the guy who actually created Leisure Suit Larry is uh, is my neighbor. Uh, he lives he lives very close to me. His name's Will Binder. What? But, uh, uh, it's this interesting thing to see what VR has become and what it will become, uh, you know, in in in, uh, in future uh, iterations of hardware. But look at look at how much it could possibly be needed right now. Because it's, it's of like very actors, poss- it's very it's, it possibility <laughs> nothing, Kim. Uh, you know, Q one the, so the, the quarter one uh, Facebook um, quarter one Facebook from uh, earnings were posted, and uh, they they were like, here's how much we made off of you know everyone's data who has a Facebook account and Instagram and all this other stuff. Here's how much we made, and then they're like, here's the non Facebook income <laughs> for Q one, and it was which means you know Oculus. So um, Oculus in Q1 of this year made $279 million. Jesus. Um, yeah. And they sold over $100 million in, um, I, th- I, want, I hope I'm saying this right, I believe it was over $100 million in content sales in the month of April, which is, of course, during the pandemic. Why can't I, ever, um, why can't I get in at something early? <laughs> well, this is still very early. I mean this this is a this is a uh, this is a time where a lot of people, just for their own psychological health, are getting into VR and they're, they're realizing, especially because of the Oculus Quest, which uh, was released last year, uh, they cannot keep they cannot keep those things in stock. I mean, I lost money on other, Bitcoin. I'm still out. I'm still out Bitcoin money. <laughs> I know. Well, uh, that's. <laughs> Every industry, so uh, a lot of these industries are sort of related. I'm late to the that, podcast that, you know, the, game. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's something that a research firm uh, that's called Accenture, uh, which is based in Ireland, uh, that they, uh, it's, uh, these are these companies that, uh, that are all related, even though they sound like they're completely different. They are all related and they're called something called dark companies. It's, they love acronyms in the tech industry. So, uh, so Accenture, uh, you know, was saying a dark company was one that would, uh, it's D-A-R-Q, and it was, it's one that, uh, that would satisfy um, any of these, uh, these, these factors. And uh, the first one, these are kind of a stretch for some of these, um, for some of these, these acronyms. But uh, the D is distributed ledger, which is a very fancy term for, um, for uh, Bitcoin, uh, for crypto, okay. basically. Uh, the second one is uh, the A is artificial intelligence, and the R is virtual reality, and uh, the Q is uh, is quantum computing. Uh, so these are comp- the, the companies that you want to really watch out for are the ones that are kind of at least touching on that where there's at least tendrils or they're going they, they have a, like a, a complete um, you know digital arm that's in any of these industries, and it's because the way that technology is moving. Um, okay. I'll give you an example. Uh, so a lot of people know with the Mandalorian that, um, that they used a virtual production that, uh, was using, uh, it was using a company called Lux, which is based in downtown LA. Right. And I watched they, the making of that on Disney. I watched that little thing. Cause we, I knew we were going to get into that. Oh, definitely. We should definitely show notes this because, because uh, if anyone has not seen this, it, it's, it's amazing. Uh, so it's this process where uh, there's a, a projection screen that uh, that kind of um, covers. I mean, you could make it any size, I suppose, but you know, it, it covers basically uh, most of a set in the same way that a green screen would work. Um, and you know, green screen technology has been around in 70 years. I, mean, I, I would wager at this point. Uh, but it was uh, this is something that's, that's very new, where instead of a green screen, you are getting. In some cases, if you need to, final pixel, um, which is, you know, you are getting the shot um, using these projection screens that are projecting a virtual environment in the background. And um, when people actually see these sets, it looks distorted. It's actually a little nauseating uh, to see it. And people are like, why does that look so funny if it's supposed to be this, uh, you know, it's, it's supposed to be this set that we built? It looks weird. It's what my eyes are distorted. I'm getting ill. Why is this happening? Well, it's because that set is actually being photographed. By a camera that you know is before all these actors and some, a little bit of set dressing and stuff. Yeah. But it's not. It, it's you know it doesn't look right to you because the camera is actually being tracked by one of those aforementioned game engines like Unity 3D or like Unreal Game Engine from Epic Games. And these uh, these engines actually have right off the bat. You could start a new project and it says, Hey, you make it a two D game. You make it a three D game. Are you making a VR game? Hey, are you making a virtual production? And you just click right there, and it'll instantly set up all these things, so you can track where the camera is going. Uh, you could it, it, uh, it's where you have cables that are sending to this game engine, and you know, you're, it's uh, you know the the environment is is basically dynamic. You can change all the lighting in the environment. You can change anything instantly. This is something that has sped up production uh, by I would say an order of magnitude at least uh, because. Uh, and it's also helpful for actors who normally are, you know, humans are not very good at, at um, even a well-trained actor is not good at, uh, at, at acting in front of a green screen. Right. Uh, and 
you know, using this virtual production, which I was just speaking about to some friends that are down in Texas who were like, how can we do this? I was talking to them the other day about it. It's, uh, and it's something that, especially in this pandemic, if you can only have very limited, let's say limited crews are coming back to, uh, yeah. know, in the fall or something. Uh, this is, this is a, a way that on many shows that you, uh, you could figure out a way to create a massive virtual set using these 3D engines. And people are like, oh, but that sounds so sci-fi. No, no. Do you want to you want to know what used a virtual set? Uh, get, uh, so let me just so you if you just guess a movie from last year, uh, like a major one. Um, yeah, just name me a movie. Rocket Man. Uh, absolutely use virtual sets in some cases. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, because yeah, there's a lot of weird slow mo. There's some so even that was using it. But you want to know one that's going to blow your mind? Uh, okay. Parasite. Parasite? Oh, they did the whole skyline or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, they did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, so that was using a virtual production. On you know, they, were, they just had some uh, some big machines that were you know located outside of. Uh, they were basically located uh, you know under a, like an easy up tent, and uh, and you had these people who were having to figure out on the fly how do we change the sky to do that? How do we do this? How do we do this? How can we, you know look at this real time and see if the shot's going to effing work. Well, they even had people on set editing the movie mm-hmm. as, as it was being shot. And so it was, it was really an astonishing moment of technology. And again, speaking to what we were talking about, about how our professions have to be very good. The, the way that that show, uh, the, the, sorry, the way that movie worked with the virtual productions because we didn't know for months until BTS came out behind the scenes came out about it. We didn't know that these were virtual shots. You mean Mandalorian? No, I mean like anything, but especially in in Parasite. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I think one of the funny things about the behind the scenes of Mandalorian is John Favreau kind of taking credit for (laughs) like, I mean, sort of did. Okay. No, I give him a lot. Uh, I love him. I love him too, and and I think it's I think it's incredible of the movies that he like the movies you would never think that guy from Swingers is doing like Lion King live action thing and like yeah I mean and, and it's not but it's not live action that's no, what everyone calls exactly it was on digital yeah it's but it's completely you know, Jungle it's like, Book no, was live action oh sorry say that again? do you think but I would say Jungle Book was live action yeah I think Jungle Book in large part was was that was a mixture of, of live production and, and CGI. Um, but uh, in the case of Lion King, not one of those objects. Right. That's all. It was all life, digital. It's not, there's nothing in it was, it was live. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I, say that again. I, yeah. Nothing in it was live. It was all digital animals. and Exactly. Like, but that's, but the, this is just the, the very point that we were trying to make is that it's a bit of magic uh, that occurs where um, we're in virtual production, where it has to be so good that you don't know it exists. So, like, uh, and by that, it's not just John Favreau. It's that's people uh, like uh, like uh, Irfan Merchant, I believe, was, was also working on Live Lion King with his uh, with his production uh, production studio in, in Burbank. And he actually, I think he, uh, that he's been so busy, he's actually had to move a couple of times in the last couple of years to move into bigger and bigger studios. And uh, so it's these people who are downright heroic because they're having to figure out for these major studios like Disney, you know, it's, it's no pressure. It's just the, the, the Lion King and it, yeah. it, has, it has to work. I think, but it, I think too, one of the things that blew me away watching that was that it's not just one big giant um, 
like screen or like a green screen is just kind of like a piece of fabric type thing that's chroma keyed or whatever. This was like hundreds of like 60 inch TVs all put together. Yeah. Yeah. It was and, crazy. Uh, and, and especially in the, in the sense of, well, okay. A lot of this was figured out. We have to actually give, uh, we have to actually give, give the credit to uh, the production team that was working uh, with Blade Runner 2017. Mm. Um, and uh, at SIGGRAPH of uh, 2017, when uh, when that movie came out, then it was uh, it was kind of breaking the internet. Where uh, and his name escapes me, unfortunately, but uh, it was one of the VFX supers, supervisors was uh, discussing how uh, they used game engine te- technology. In this case, it was um, in uh, in the case of Mandalorian, it's the Unreal Engine. In the case of Unity 3D, it was these filmmakers, uh, especially with Digital Monarch. This, uh, Digital Monarch Media was owned by uh, by Unity, and uh, you know they've been working on a lot of these projects as well. So it's these people who are just figuring it out every single day how to create this thing, create these virtual environments that don't exist. Putting on a VR headset, like it's and then wearing it on their headsets, on their foreheads, like it's a little tiara. You know, changing something in right. a computer, popping it, popping the HMD down, looking in, the, in a, like a virtual set. It's like going to another friggin' dimension. It's insane. Popping the headset up again, changing something out, changing out set dressing, moving Simba around. You know, it's like moving, uh, you know, putting it back on again. It's it's weird. It's like looking into another dimension. Yeah. And then and then having to go back and just make the movie that way. So it's it's having to use all these different technologies, and that's why I thought it was probably a good insight to look into this virtual reality stuff like three years ago because it has paid off it has really helped in my career and i do think that if editors have to be big technical storytellers then um it it makes perfect sense that we have to go into the latest and greatest digital entertainment and especially in this case interactive storytelling that's mm-hmm. that's why i think it's really important yeah i mean you've definitely evolved you you're evolving with technology yeah yeah what if like you know march of 2011 what if i just kind of said well fuck it it's uh you know it, it, well i guess all the videotapes gone well, i don't know i'm right, uh, right. I'm just, you know, i guess i'll just go home and not, not, i'm not going to do my job because uh you know because those factories are all fine it's it, no that we have to figure things out and that's why i think that um being an editor is a very unique thing because uh, Jonathan is just a plethora of knowledge. I'm sure you could tell he he could talk about anything, and that is such a skill. Um, I think in being an editor and now in creating VR worlds is just perfect because he likes the details and finds interest in them. Um, just r- really interesting, dude. I don't know if uh, he knows a lot of people. You probably know him. <laughs> Uh, you can check out his work uh, on his website, jonathanfisher.mystrikingly.com. I'll also have that link in the episode post. So I'm very thankful that he was able to explain editing to me <laughs> and talk about how it relates to production design, uh, the continuity of shows, and um, yeah, see that? We are all spokes in the wheel. I wanted to thank you for the ratings and reviews that people are leaving. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's really helps me out with this podcast. So, um, yeah, thank you. 
Um, and if you haven't, just, you know, right now, just clickety-click, five stars, cool. Um, I also see that people are checking out the clips that I've been making on YouTube and the Decorating Pages podcast website, so I hope you're enjoying them. I think they're fun. It gives a little visual to what we're saying here. If you ever have any questions or requests of interviews, please let me know. You can always email me at kimwanup at decoratingpagespodcast.com. You can DM me on the social, Decorating Pages on Instagram or Twitter or the Facebook page. La, 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 la. I would love to hear from you, though. I hope you got an earful. I'm Kim Wanup for Decorating Pages. Summer is half over. Are you floating in style on your stogie? Stogie Floaty Luxury Pool Float. Available now on Amazon, Etsy, and stogiefloaty.com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.